GM Jenko. What's up, Carlo? How are you, man? I'm good, man. How are you? Try and retweet this. What do you hit? Oh, the little, like the Charlie Brown cloud thing. And it goes to your tweet, and you tweet it out. Okay. Yeah, they made it a little more difficult. It's like a two-step dance now. Two-step dance. <laughs> it's about as complicated as I can do. All right, so how are you today, man? We already have stuff pinned. And I'm, I'm doing well. Um, yeah, man, look, this, uh, this particular aspect of the Web3 community, Web3 law, moves very fast. Doesn't really care about market conditions, floor prices, volume. Regulations are coming. Legal developments are constantly happening. So, I mean, we're in a great place at a great time. I'm excited. Absolutely, man. Um, I feel the same way. Uh, you did a thread about the about Chastain's case. Um, all right, let's kick it off. I'll, I'm excited about Sarah's going to be on tomorrow. Um, that's going to be cool. Yeah, that's wonderful, man. I'm glad that you were able to get her to come in and, and speak with us. I'm looking forward to that. All right, disclaimer time. I'm walking, so I'm going to walk and disclaim. Welcome to Lawline with Carlo and Jenko. We bring this in conjunction with Rug Radio. We meet every Tuesday through Friday, 1230 Eastern, to talk about new and emerging developments in Web3 law. Nothing we talk about should be considered legal or financial advice if you have a specific legal question. You should consult a lawyer privately, not on a recorded Twitter space, because we are recording this and we may rebroadcast it on future platforms. How's that, Janko? That's good. That's good. Um, no legal advice, no financial advice, and we're being recorded. There isn't much else to do. And I'm going to talk about things I own. I love it. That's what I. That's mainly the stuff I know about when we talk about these NFTs. <laughs> How's your project going that minted yesterday? I, to me, I think it's it's awesome. I'm very bullish on Alan and Gaia. Um, what they set out to do is make a block explorer that, and I, I I learned a ton of the science behind this. But there's this science of like visual information, and like our brains can accept information that we take in symbolically at a much higher rate than if we're reading it or if we're searching databases. So like street signs, nautical flags, like there's a lot of instances cross language where symbolism kind of communicates important information quickly. And Alan has like, they've, they're working with like somebody who's a specialist in that field to like develop an ether scan but the user interface is just as, as easy as they can make it, and much of the information is com- communicated um, visually through symbols. So you'll see, like, Carlo minted G Money's T-shirt in a series of quick symbols as opposed to a series of, like, database queries. Um, so they're in the same place they are relative to that goal today as they were yesterday (laughs) this is like my little league coach in me we were like oh and 16 one year and it's like i i don't know maybe i'm just an optimist but i i i I just see that they're in the same position they were 
but the sales are nowhere near where the founders want them to be or expected them to be. I think they, I think they're under 500, maybe under 400 last I checked. Uh, now that 10 K was more used for marketing and purposes for this block explorer, but still, um, tough macro conditions, tough market conditions. Sure. But I think they were slightly disappointed, but I, that's just kind of being close to the project. I, I knew, I, I, I feel that they're where they want to be with respect to that long-term goal. You know what I'm saying? Look, man, I mean, so I appreciate it's, you it's the, the support. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, look, it's a difficult time to be launching, but it doesn't change the fact that innovation is still going to proceed. And just because this project has not minted out, doesn't mean it doesn't have sustainable future. And it sounds like they're innovating in ways that are important because I, for one, am not really good at reading EtherScan. I'm going to be honest on that. It's it's kind of, to me, almost Sanskrit and cryptic. I can't, I can't really decipher it. So I think there's a major utility there. Yeah, it's not easy. Um, so that's kind of a macro goal, an onboarding thing. Alan knows all angles of this Web3, so he's the right person to lead. Um, but that's right, a fun, just nice. that was just fun, fun project. Yeah. Very cool people learned a ton about that symbolic language science. So I'm looking forward to more things like that. More just everybody, every application, every Web3 DAP, like instituting that. Because even like Uniswap has come a long way in a few short years with like their interface and stuff. And that stuff really matters to onboarding people, I think. Well, obviously, Jenko has an interest in this project, and we're given full disclosure, but it's definitely something fascinating oh, yeah, to talk about, you know, from the tech perspective. So consider that sort of an ad, but not an ad, but mostly That was just my commercial. About... I owe Carlo <laughs> half a commercial fee. <laughs> if the FTC is listening, we're covered. All right. <laughs> well, so, let's talk, so, Nate. You went through yeah, the motion. I went through up? some of the motion this morning. Matt had thoughts. I know bird and all's pelts i'm sure has an opinion but everybody kind of works so we can meander through a conversation but anybody carlos if you want to raise your hand please do yeah welcome to come up and talk on this kind of set the table so we all know the nate case this alleged insider the trading. nate case are we I mean, like local reporters like dubbing for, uh, alleged criminals like nicknames now the Nate We're the here. court TV of Web3. Precise. Yeah, let's get so, Abrams on this show. I, right? I could reach out to him. All right, cool. Go ahead. So, you know, the Nate case is kind of infamous in the space because it's a, it's a hybrid prosecution of, of basically um, wire fraud and money laundering, but under this theory of insider trading. And that drew a lot of questions when the indictment went down because the entire indictment was premised on this notion of insider trading, but we're nowhere closer to defining NFTs as securities now as we were when the indictment dropped. So the defense team filed a, a very, I think a very well-written motion to dismiss. It sets the table for a conversation with the court and as I note in my thread, it's basically a three-prong attack. Number one, NFTs are not securities. They are not commodities. And this theory of 
prosecution under the notion of insider trading would require that. And the government apparently conceded at the pretrial hearing, as is cited in the motion, that they are not securities or commodities. Why is that, that in the motion then? And I think it was Matt who answered it in the thread, but what what is the answer to that? In the sense of what is why is what in the motion? Why is why did the defense put in these are not securities, therefore, well, like, if it wasn't, didn't we determine that it wasn't, an, it, th- those were more headline words and were not an element of any crime alleged? Well, because they're going under the theory tied to uh, a, a, so basically it's a little bit of a long-winded explanation, but their position is that because the government brought this indictment under a theory that is advanced in a in Did a I line of Supreme Court there, precedent. Can you hear me? I hope. Can everybody hear me? Oh, boy. There he is. Am no, I you're wrong? back. Okay. Go ahead. Sorry. So I think the, the reasoning for that is that the government brought this case under, and he's not back. under a theory that is connected My to... My understanding was that long... it was not an element in the underlying cause, or not cause of action, but, but alleged crime. So therefore, it isn't it part of a motion to dismiss may be mere puffery, as they say. Well, it, it is and it isn't because they they're premising Carlos the commission God. of a crime based. They're basically premising the commission of a crime on misappropriation of inside information. And if you if you unpack that, then what is the crime that was committed? Because going back to their sort of three prong attack. It's not a security. Number two, it isn't even inside information because Nate apparently was thinking up who to put on this front page of the website. And the open sea business can't own his ideas. And then if, if you don't have misappropriation of inside information affecting securities, meaning affecting markets, then you don't have any, any modicum of, of fraud here. So that's 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 one and two. And then number three is you can't money launder unless you have securities fraud. Unless you have some sort of fraud. Unless you have wire fraud. I mean, you've got to have an underlying crime. You have to have an underlying crime. It doesn't need to be uh, securities fraud, but an underlying crime exactly. to wash the money because then you're not washing the money. Bernals, what do now, you think? Now, Bernals came up. Bernals, set the record straight. No, I think I, I want to hear more from Carlo. I thought of love and what you had to say on this. The only thing I wanted to step in and say, I thought the, the, the motion did a really good job of explaining Carpenter, which is the, the Supreme Court case law that this insider trading that they essentially, the, apparently the DOJ said they're bringing this under. And, and the Carpenter case, um, it was essentially, I think it was either New York Times or Wall Street Journal or one of those newspapers where there was a column that was going to be released about here's here's the good stocks to buy, here's bad stocks, things like that, that was going to have a insight that was going to have an effect on markets. They showed that that was an effect on markets. And they, the the court held under that 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 could still fall under a uh, insider trading wire fraud um, because it has an effect on these markets, and that's what these insider trading laws are supposed to be protecting against. Wire fraud is supposed to be protecting against this 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 uh, this, this effect on markets, and then combined with a confidentiality obligation, obligation to your employer, 
that's where you get the wire fraud and that's where the wire fraud comes in. So that's why they go into great lengths and saying that these aren't securities or commodities because that even in Carpenter, the issue was that this was going to have an effect on securities or commodities marketplaces. And that's why they that's why they kind of expand the law beyond just like stock traders, but also people that are dealing with this knowledge indirectly. Thank you. Can I ask a dumb question? Does something do NFTs have to be either a security or a commodity? Or is there another category? Like, can you thread the needle and not be either? So we haven't really discussed that deeply. I don't I don't think so. I mean, this obviously isn't the area I practice in on a day to day. But no, my understanding is that for there to be wire fraud, and this insider trading uh, uh, kind of language, then no, there has to be there has to be a security or a commodity that is involved. Remember that insider trading is perfectly re- legal when talking about like real estate. Like people know, hey, there's oil on this land that people don't know about. I'm going to buy this land for cheaper than they could give it to me. Like there's nothing absolutely there's absolutely nothing wrong with insider trading when it doesn't have to deal with these financial markets. Um, which is the which is the uh, Dodd Frank Act tried to. That's tried to fascinating that. because that positions Open Sea to defend to to agree with this motion in the sense that they don't want to be operating one of these regulated. Well, at least the 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 stock, the equity market. And Birdnall's nailed it. You nailed it. Yep, Birdnall's that makes a lot of sense. The Carpenter case is it was it was a Wall Street Journal case, and it was. Uh, it was deemed to be insider trading because that information was actually affecting markets. And by, I think it was the reporter leaking the, the market trends that were about to come out in that article that had an adverse impact upon the market. The problem in this case is they can't make that argument. And in fact, the motion cites two hypotheticals, one talking about a gallery and a gallery, uh, you know, worker who's putting artwork up on the wall and sort of front running the, the, the window. And the second analogy is coffee beans. Uh, coffee, coffee shop is going to feature a bean. It's going to probably be very hot and trending. So someone front runs and buys a big supply of those beans. And then after it goes up in the window and it turns out to be a success, they turn around and, you know, sell those beans at a profit. There's really no difference here because if NFTs are just coffee beans and not commodities or securities, then like Birdnall said, you don't have wire fraud. And if you don't have wire fraud, you don't have money laundering. And Jenko, the government, I think, basically boxed themselves into this position by relying on this insider trading theory and this Carpenter case. You, you agree with that, Birdnalls? Yeah, they didn't bring a fraud, a fraud claim or anything like that. They they brought it under under I mean a regular fraud. They brought wire fraud under Carpenter and they said apparently they explicitly cited to that um, during the hearing, which I do think I mean obviously they're not held to that. They can always change up. I don't think things just because it's said by the attorney in the hearing that that's somehow binding, but that's obviously how they have positioned this case from the start. Um, so any kind of ruling where they said that Carpenter wasn't applicable because this doesn't have to deal with that would, I would think be a death blow to the case as it currently stands. Yeah. Because I'll tell you what, if I'm going to, if this doesn't get granted and I'm taking this case to trial, I think one of the things I'm going to pursue is I'm going to ask for a jury instruction 
And I'm going to I'm going to probably try to get some kind of finding from the jury as to whether these things are securities. I understand that's a legal conclusion, but that's a factually relevant element here. Well, you can get all the facts. Exactly. You can can enumerate it into four instructions or something. Um, and go through the how we test. Did he have an expert? Like you could do a number of things and get um, the jury to opine. But why? What? What's the oh, effect of that? Other than it would, <laughs> it would be cool no. for law line listeners. Like no, the, no, I think the, there's a great effect how's that here help because me? from a from a strategic standpoint, I call an expert who lays out that these things are not securities, and by the end of that expert's testimony, that expert is basically saying these are coffee beans, and therefore there's no crime here. I think that would be a big I think that would be a big strategic advantage when you're going to closing argument. And the jury questions are for appeal or something like that, because if they find that it wasn't a security and then they find him guilty of something that requires the finding of security, you can kind of open it, reopen it up. Like why the jury question? For sure. Anytime. And I do a lot of I've done a lot of federal appeals charge error error in granting or denying jury instructions is always something you want to try to have on appeal because it is an area where you can get, uh, you can get a new trial and there's, there's a lot of, of positive briefing in that respect. So anytime you can propose jury instructions, whether they get granted or struck, you, you create appellate issues. So absolutely. I also think, and I also think having an expert witness and putting it in front of the jury, whether NFTs or securities sort of, could could be a very very big thing for reasonable doubt in a case like this. I would I would think that it would also give the judge an out too, right? If they if they have a finding that is contrary to if they have a finding regarding securities that's contrary to their their innocence or guilt, um, that also gives the judge an out to uh, absolutely to uh, over overturn their ruling and do a mistrial, right? There's a, there's a trial lawyer right there. Yeah, you can get a judgment uh, notwithstanding the verdict, potentially, or you can get a judgment of acquittal before it actually goes to the jury based on, you know, you're, you're under the rules. You've got to, at both phases of the case, make an make a argument for a directed verdict and basically prevent the jury from even hearing the case. So it opens up all kinds of interesting issues. I always liked that as a strategy. And when I was much, much younger is when I did a lot of volume in trials and they were low risk and I was out there doing whatever I, 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 you could think of at a time, you know, like I didn't know what I was doing, but I always liked that strategy as I got older and the cases became more sophisticated. I was often working with teams of litigators, co-plaintiffs or whatever, and they wouldn't, go for this like the more white shoe firms kind of don't maybe the book is keeping jury instructions simple but i would love burying an element a necessary element of the total cause of action as a as a jury question that if i got a pot and then because even the other attorney wouldn't scrutinize like all the questions that just they, the main questions will get the scrutiny. So like if I can get a necessary element in there as a defense attorney, it was when we would, if the jury would answer the correct way on that and you can kind of skew the language a bit, you can then say, Hey, they, they screwed up. They, they cannot necessarily find my client liable given question 23 a and how they responded. 
And I, I don't don't like that. I really like, but you kind of have to be a real gamesman and really, and, and, and the eve of trial, like sometimes that, that's, that just falls off the desk, but I do like that. In federal court, in federal court, Jenko, that's not going to fly because they're going to have pre-trial hearing and they're going to have a charge conference and the judge is going to most likely want all these proposed jury instructions. This yeah. is state court, low risk, mass superior court. I'm in Norfolk County or something. And like we're writing jury instructions on legal pads, turning them in. And yeah, we have 15 Jenko, minutes to do it. <laughs> you know, This is Jenko scratching out jury instructions on yeah, the lunch this break. Is different. <laughs> hey, excuse the mustard judge, but can we get this charge to the jury? <laughs> we used to try cases, man, because we, the theory was my, my young boss was like, we want the insurance companies to think we were going to try everything. So just don't settle these small ones and then send Ray to try the small ones. So then they can settle the bigger ones for more. Like it, it, it was genius because they had enough case flow that that mattered. But back to Nate. Yeah. Look, man, having tried a number of federal cases and I love trial work, I hate that this is going to come at, at the expense of Nate's potential Liberty, because that's always obviously the first thing I consider when I go to trial but from purely just the tactical and the practical aspects of being a trial lawyer, I mean, this would be a really interesting case to try. And Matt, Matt gave some insight, but I want you to, I don't, I, I asked the question um, as a prosecutor, if I'm a plaintiff's attorney and I represent a thousand asbestos plaintiffs in 50 different states but all the plain, all the cases are against four or five defendants, all of different value. It, it's improper for me to kind of game them together if they're not tied together. I can't give the defendant a break in one with a wink and a nod to get more on the other one. I can't like use my plaintiffs as chips. But on the prosecution side, they don't have that kind of constraint. Is there a more well? No, constraint? prosecutors and the are they vast majority to game and, and think politically or beyond the defendant in front of them, and how much does that come into play? I don't think so, and I would say the vast majority of prosecutors that I work with, if not, I'll say all the prosecutors I've ever worked with, um, I don't see them having that sort of an agenda. Their agenda is to do justice, and you do have obviously bad apples, and that's unfortunate. But no, in my opinion, dealing with and yeah, there's a broad. We're all sort of figuring out the legal the legal parameters and limitations. But no, I think when these prosecutors brought this case, uh, they were looking at this from the perspective of doing justice. Now, the question it begs is, who are the victims here? Like, who got victimized in this? Well, is, can is they say they see justice as changing the landscape broadly? Matt, what do you think? I didn't want to cut you off, Carlo, but Matt. Well, I just wanted to say <clears throat> that that all prosecutors, I think, whether they're federal or state, and whenever there's politics involved, there's always an issue of policy. That being said, uh, they must keep in mind that the power that they wield is, is tremendous and that a prosecutor bringing an action to try to, you know, kick up some policy is is quasi criminal. So they're, you know, and some states are ahead of that and have created watchdog groups. Um, but totally, 
it there's totally it, it, policy is 100 percent involved as much as it can be within the realm of the law and within the realm of ethics but it's totally involved and and i mean you you see it you know whether it's implicit or it's expressly said there's always going to be a matter of, of policy well these cases like for example, you know, oh, well, all felony, you know, this is not the same thing, but all felony DWI cases we're going to take to trial. All, uh, when I used to do criminal defense work, the district attorney at the time said, if you're caught with a loaded gun, we're not giving you a plea. You plead to the indictment or you're going to trial. And that was policy. Now, I was there a case where there was a bad search. You know, they wouldn't hold them to that. Or if there was really something going on, you had a constructive possession case where the gun was found in a car with eight other people. OK, sure. But there was office policy. But again, they have to be really careful because they're prosecutors. So they can't just commence this action like you can almost kind of do in a civil lawsuit uh, when you have some good faith. But maybe, you know, it, it, it not as much as you should. They have to be very careful. But I'm but rest assured, there's always policy implications and especially in the sovereign district of new york i mean this is the this is this is sdn this is where law is made i mean this is not you know this is they have their own policy never mind doj you know they have their own their own policy but they have to be very careful i mean you have to be very careful with the prosecutors because of the power that they yield and when i you know, worked in the New York State Attorney General's office. That was always, even though I wasn't doing criminal work, even from a civil point, you have to be very careful because when you commence an action as a, you know, in that office, it has repercussions. But there's always going to be policy, whether or not you're an appointee or you have to, uh, you know, run every four years. There are always, but there's there's got to be that delicate balance. Now here, I mean... There are a whole bunch of reasons why, you know, this action may have been been commenced. But I I've appeared before, you know, the judge and he's a smart person. I think he's on a short list of people that may, you know, be considered for the Supreme Court at some point. I think I recall reading. Um, so they got a good judge. They have somebody who's hopefully going to really take a look at everything. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, that that's really what I really wanted to mention, that prosecutors always have policy agenda some are more hidden than others and it, but it's there i i agree matt you, you stated that in a much more eloquent way than i did on the cuff but yeah i i think you're very accurate in the way you portray it and to actually dig down deep into a prosecutor's motivations is a very tough thing to do because you, you're very very rarely going to see it explicitly stated so you're right i agree with that I don't think you guys kind of disagreed. You both said that they take very seriously the choice to prosecute and then how they handle things may, there may be internal and kind of policy. Matt, will you unpack, what's your point of view? And I don't know if you can speak to it because I know you practice a lot in this area. What's open seas position here? How do they game this? What's their best outcome what are they trying to balance? And also, what's the communication like between ONC and prosecutors? Is it free-flowing? Are they locked down? Are they going to have to subpoena our documents? Or are they like part of the like co-prosecutor? Like where on that spectrum? Any insight or, or guesses? Well, without – I did have some meetings with 
with OpenSea about a, a, a job position. So I don't want to go too much into that, but I think that they're very much complying um, with, with the government and are just saying, yeah, uh, whatever you need, here it is. I think they're trying to just do the right thing and not get dragged into this because, you know, they're a U.S. based company and there's a lot going on, in, you know, in the space. And I would expect that, I mean, maybe they need a subpoena just to say that they got a subpoena, you know, but they weren't going to move to quash. I doubt, you know, like I'm sure they're I'm sure they're cooperating as best they can so they can not be targets because. <laughs> We just don't know who the next target is, what's it going to be. Like Carlo said before, this is a very fast-moving space and things happen all the time. And I think a lot of these big platforms are just trying to comply uh, as best they can, depending on the jurisdiction where they're located, uh, to avoid becoming, you know, more of a, as, as opposed to a witness, becoming a target. And, you know, that's I guess they see the way of, of compliance and listening is the way to avoid that. And they're definitely relevant to the conversation. I can see OpenSea as an essential witness in the case because they're going to have to testify and set the table for the internal dynamics of how this, you know, this homepage policy was implemented, how much discretion Nate had. Was it this was it his sole decision? Did you run it by what do by you do there to people? protect that? In, from a defense, in the civil form, like, I don't want to cooperate. I don't want to answer your questions. I don't want to facilitate the prosecution of this kid. You have to. With my not proprietary information, is there anything that we can do? Well, you can plead the fifth. Like, like oh, some people, we were some people get criticized, <laughs> okay. say you can't plead the fifth, but then they do it themselves. It also depends what jurisdiction you're in and. Uh, you know those those rules in terms of what you can but say and what no you can't say. There's no proprietary business information. There's no nothing like that. To I mean, to there might there there could be, and then you might have someone might refuse to answer, and you may have to have like a make a motion, go in camera, and, and then and, and then open seas keeper of records could be in contempt, criminal contempt. Well, I wouldn't. I would expect that they would comply, and that if, that. that if that happened, that there would be a subpoena. They would, you know, do a, a, a privilege log or whatever it would be, and they would submit something for an in-camera. But there's certain things that they're not going to be able to say. I mean, but for the most part, you know, sitting for a deposition, depending on, you know, what jurisdiction you're in, it's all it's all fair game. But if they feel like at some point something they say may incriminate them, they're allowed in a civil court to, you know, a civil matter to 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 plead the fifth if it's civil and then, you know, but the jury, civil, depending there's on what, a negative presumption. Right, exactly. So it depends on what jurisdiction you're in, but, you know, you're allowed to draw a negative inference. Wow. So they can do that. a privilege log. The government can then push them. And then there's just, it's just a battle. The judge makes a ruling, et cetera. But your business inside info is kind of on the table right now. I would say so. And I it may never come out. that's the priority, right? And I think the way to best protect it is your approach. Hey, what can we get for you? And yeah. I don't think oh, yeah, that's... totally. And, and when it comes to trade secrets and stuff like that, this is not new. We've had stuff, you know, in the past. You can keep where, stuff where... confidential within the case. under Right, the right, seal, right. And the court and the court may see stuff that 
the public is not going to see. But that's this happens all the time. And that's why we have in camera proceedings. And that's why, you know, otherwise nobody would be able to do business if 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 stuff that they feel and they relied upon trade secrets and all this kind of stuff was going to be possibly, you know, open to the public. That has to be some, you know, guardian. But yeah, I would expect that they're without, you know, I don't have any knowledge of this, but without having that knowledge, I would expect that they are like, here, take, take whatever you need. Just maybe send me a subpoena. So it doesn't look like I'm just doing whatever you asked me to do. I like so we that, could, man. you know, but that's, I mean, cause that's typically what you, that's what I would do. I would say, yeah, yeah I don't, I don't think, I don't think the featured artwork page of OpenSea is the hill that anybody at OpenSea wants to die on and get a contempt order from a federal judge. So, yeah, I tend to agree with Matt on that. <laughs> yeah, I think Carlo. that they're playing nice until they until it seems like Do they, you know, they may be a target. And until they're not a target and they're uh, lawyers or whomever is looking over the stuff saying this is harmless, this this isn't going to hurt us in any way. Take it, you know. I got a C in crim law and I've forgotten everything since. So like it's gone downhill since then. Um, my C was the highest from the high point. So I'm trying to un- understand. Um, I'm very uncomfortable with the weight of the prosecutor, the DOJ. You're in, you're in the Southern district. You're facing a judge who's on a short list. This is serious stuff. The criminal wheel of the criminal powerhouse system enforcing a confidential, like turning on a confidentiality between some employee and some private corporation. Where else in our criminal system do we have an element or a foundation or criminal enforcement of something of that nature it, it's surprising to me <laughs> and it really has no <laughs> securities like insider trading securities insider trading well okay let's unpack that there's the there's a fraud on the public and no and you have to prove a that you had a special relationship but b that you caused the fraud on the public here the ele- the win isn't even part of the there's no element it's just you breached your com- you you acted on the confidential information there didn't even have to be the fraud the fraud's part of the wire fraud like breaching the confidentiality became criminal or do you see it as the same as securities well that would be no, that's why that's why they got to do the wire fraud because securities is a very specific statute that requires inside information that you're privy to that you know if you share it could impact markets and that when you share it, you're sharing it with this understanding that what you're doing could could impact trading decisions. A mens rea with criminal kind of level. What the, Breaching a private contract criminally met. Is there another no. example or what's the I, rationale I think, there? I think breaching, breaching that confidentiality agreement gives open seat standing to enforce so, it. Right. I don't so, think that that's that that's a cause of action based upon traditional contract breach of contract elements it might it might be a factor and a fact that's used to prove intent uh but yeah that that would be something else but these confidentiality agreements and stuff are are used all the time and like i had a case where there was a uh, board of directors and two of them were having an affair and 
you know, the judge had to read a bunch of the confidentiality agreements in, in camera. I mean, this stuff happens a lot, especially with, uh, you know, trade secrets. I mean, about that case, because what, there was a crime, there breaching? No, it was civil. It was a breach okay. of fiduciary duty, all that kind of stuff. That's all fair. The... When, does the cri- when do we criminalize breaching a private contract like that, an employment so, agreement? Yeah, the only other example I can think of, as opposed SEC. to insider training security, would be to breach government secrets. If you're a government contractor and you've got an agreement with the government that you're going to keep certain information confidential because it would affect national security and so on and so forth. And that forth. comes, each of those come with an effect outside of, with a criminal consequence, but the, the example has a effect on others outside, like you're manipul- manipulating the exactly. market. Or in your example, there were others affected, like national security was affected. This is quite simply, he breached the confidence, like, they don't need to prove that he made money on the sale. They don't need to prove that anyone was duped by the cover of the homepage. They, there's no element there. It's it's really criminalizing the breach of a employment contract and the power position that employers and, and employees have. It's just astounding that, that that's that's where the criminal. I just don't. That's know why this. That. That's why this motion basically says that this is first impression and that this is opening the door to an unprecedented change in the way we interpret the the abuse of information because it's not affecting markets because these aren't securities. Okay, so that's where I was going. So the motion argues, frankly, that, and we'll see where it goes. And, and this isn't – the prosecutor's not standing on a long line of jurisprudence where – They've been con- been successful in conviction, convicting. No, no. Based on Matt, these private agree. agreements. Okay. Well, I, I'm I wondering, Matt, Carlo, can they amend the indictment and just common law fraud? Put that in there at some point. I'm not familiar at what time frame they they can't amend the indictment, or I, I don't really know. But I'm just wondering because that seems to be a, a hot topic. There's no just common law fraud, or you know, to make it criminal. You know, can they? at some point amend the indictment that's an interesting question because there's got to be a predicate offense to justify the money laundering and the the broad the broad all-encompassing easy way to prove is wire fraud because it basically just requires committing some modicum of fraud with respect to some kind of property using some kind of electronic communication so the more they mire themselves in trying to tether themselves to a state statute, I think would complicate their path and frankly would welcome more motions back and forth potentially. Um, I don't know. That, that's a good question. One of the other aspects of this that is kind of dropped in the very end of this that I found fascinating, and I'd love to get your take on it, Matt, is that in, in the alternative, Judge, if you're not going to grant this motion to dismiss, then we want to see the grand jury instructions. We want to see the instructions that the prosecutor gave the grand jury on how to reach this indictment, because although they're secret, grand jury proceedings are secret, we are making a good case here that we're entitled to this information and we need it to defend our client. That opens up an interesting aspect as far as the government's strategy, because that is opening you up to what they were saying in the grand jury room. I mean, I've seen that in in state court uh, often, I don't know, I don't have much federal criminal experience, but in state court, 
when I w- we would make a motion, part of the omnibus motion would be to, you know, have the grand jury minutes, the uh, the instruction. Sometimes it would be easier to get than others. There was like a boilerplate response that the that the judge would would order. But I think there's I think there's mechanisms uh, to do that. And I would assume that there's uh, some way to do it in, in federal court. But, yeah, I I, I would. You got to go. And that's what kind of sucks because you're making law and it's like just based on like the strength and the decisions of this one legal team. But you have to go for everything here. You have to kind of have a well-funded, deep, everything's on the line. Um, This is a heavyweight fight type thing. Yeah. And look, in my experience, you have to make a compelling case to get grand jury testimony, grand jury evidence, especially on a federal case. I've been successful in doing it when I'm at trial and I want to know what the case agent testified to before the grand jury, but it's, it's not a given. That's fantastic. I don't know what else to unpack. I, I like the motion to dismiss. Do you, do you have a, 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 a handicap on its chance of full success or partial success? Will they whittle down the causes or the crime, the alleged crimes? Will it be effective? Is this just setting the stage for the judge when really it's not going to you know, get anything dismissed? Where do you see it? Yeah, look, uh, I think I might have got rugged on part of that question, but I think this case. It was the well, same thing repeated seven different ways. So, you know, <laughs> I think this case has very broad implications for the space um, because it it. it opens a conversation in court and it's going to compel decisions from judges from a judge in particular, who is very well respected as to how these assets are defined. And um, it could have a chilling effect on other similar prosecutions going forward. If the government is uh, dismissed out of this case. Good. Very good. Do you see that happening? Do you know, you know, I don't know, man. Like, like I think we talked about, it's a very fact-driven issue, and a judge may well just leave this to a jury to hash out. I'm going to keep an open mind on it until I see the government's response, because I can promise you the government's going to push back very hard on these arguments, and they're going to have their own set of authorities and their own interpretation of the facts. And that's why it's hard to win on a motion to dismiss, because you're basically saying that if you take every single thing in the case as true, there's nothing that the government can put forward to prove the elements of the crime. It's basically, you know, yeah, it's, it's like summary judgment. You take everything that's yeah. exactly, exactly. <clears throat> and that, I mean, that's, that's, that's very high, high standard, very high standard. But yeah, if you're able yeah, to I, contort and frame it in case of first impression, they're relying upon as a matter of law, this confidentiality agreement, and it's improper to, to, you know, act in there the way that they want you to for here's why. Like it can, this is the, 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 the nature of a case that might, the type of case it may. And it ties into, Jenko, one of the things that our good friend Ira has talked about when looking at this case is the rule of lenity, where, like you just said, you got an issue of first impression defining a law. You want to define that law in the most favorable way possible to the defendant because it is a first impression. The rule of lenity 
we don't want to come down overly harsh on something that's not clearly defined under the law. Wow. Very good. Fascinating. Was there another yeah. one we wanted to squeeze in before we wrap up? Well, you know, we, we, we can save <laughs> it for Sarah tomorrow. tomorrow. That, letter, that letter that went out uh, to the Treasury Secretary from Representative Emer is certainly interesting when it comes to tornado cash. I think we talk, we talk about that tomorrow, maybe. We have Sarah tomorrow. Oh, we have Sarah on tomorrow. That's right. Yeah, Sarah's script. Yeah, tomorrow. I don't know that we want to bore Sarah with talking about OFAC. Yeah, we can get her opinion. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, yeah, we have a few moments. If you want to share at least the, the factual basis, what the letter was, who it was, um, my opinion's pretty – I mean, I told you, we've, we've – if, if we're going to interpret the laws as it stands, there's no privacy in this country. So I don't know what they're talking about, but go ahead. Well, you know, it opens up a conversation because this this representative is asking the Treasury Department to sort of clarify, you know, this is the first time you're coming down on a technology um, and you're 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 saying that they failed to take adequate precautions to protect against North Korea utilizing this, you know, blockchain technology to facilitate money laundering. Can you expound on exactly, you know, how and what they could have done different seems to be the, the, the lingering question that I'm seeing asked. They're like, OK, you've sanctioned them. You've made this chilling effect. And also, indirectly, you've caused a lot of people's wallets to get locked up who are basically just innocent users of this utility platform. This can make for some interesting yeah, congressional hearings. The, the effects of kind of stopping things and, and pressuring other platforms and protocols to, to not engage with those who are, you know, secondarily removed. I think that that's just a fascinating, hopefully just a bump in the road as we progress. But I, I, I think there's going to, it's going to have a lot of implications that we don't even know yet. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think it's uh it, 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 this is going to open up a, a future conversation on law line because number one, I think the treasury will respond. And number two, this could trigger, you know, subpoenas to Congress to come in and testify about this. And the, 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 the speech implications, the chilling impact that this is having on the blockchain, the fears that reverberate through the blockchain and through, you know, people. Yeah, who but are doesn't that free. just. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Oh, they, they put tornado cash on the list they block wallets they get one or two senators to want to grandstand on twitter get some hearings have some sound bites and then what happens the week of the hearing because the government side is more organized and and repeat players at being you know called to testify just the doom and gloom like now they've professionally put a presentation together of how terrible tornado cash is and then the headlines latch on to that testimony um so i don't know i even sometimes when there's a back and forth it devolves and can put the space back so i hope they the political arena is not always the best place to like get a, a fair understanding of things um so i don't know and there you have it dear listener that is the magic of law line the yin and yang between Jenko the cynic and Carlo the eternal optimist. <laughs> well, okay, there have beautiful uh, <laughs> hearings. They will come in and scientists will testify. And the, the, center, the young 
uh, vibrant senators will listen with open arms and understand the testimony. And then they're huddle up neutrally and say, what, how can we best create a policy? Is that what's going to happen? I love it, Jenko. I don't know what's going to happen, but I love the debate. I we'll talk to Sarah That's what I'm here tomorrow for, at 1230. Sarah Script tomorrow at 1230 brought to Matt, you thanks to Jenko. And I'm really looking forward to that. Huh? You there, Jenko? Did I lose you? No, I'm here. I was just kind of saying that we've got teeing up for tomorrow. We have Sarah at 1230. Thank you, Matt, for contributing today. And thanks, Carlo, for everything you do to prep. Oh, yeah, we absolutely. Jenko, I love having these talks. There. First week, I think. Um, That's right. We got to con- we got to congratulate the professor. <laughs> All right. Dude. The 6529 University. I love it. All right. Thank you, Jenko. I always enjoy these talks, man. We'll do it again tomorrow. Thank you to everyone who joined us. Peace. And uh, we'll see you again for lunchtime vibes.